Mr. Derek Veenhoff. He's better known as Deke. Nah. Drinking liquor with DJ Deke, we out laughing. Nah. Yeah, Deke. I got two cans of uh, berry-flavored LaCroix. Okay, so this is a non-alcoholic uh, spritzed-up beverage. Is that is that the thing? Uh, it's a LaCroix is a sparkling, what is this? Uh, sparkling water. Right. Yeah, it's uh, I, I, a recovering uh, Coke Zero addict. It's be- it, it helps you... Uh, Helps you get your refreshment without any right. kind of... I, uh, I used to work at an Essos gas station for like 10 years, and one guy came in one day and he said, Coke Zero, what's, it, what's that mean? And I go, I think zero calories. And he goes, yeah, yeah, right. Like he didn't believe me at all. He just didn't believe it. But that's, that's what it is. It is what it is. It's what it is. That's the whole thing. It, it, that's everything about it. <laughs> and it tastes a little worse or whatever. I don't know. Well, their whole point, hey, you got a cool, refreshing beer. Yeah, and I even got the the branded glass, and I only drink that beer now. So everything's branded and, you know. Oh, is Coors a um, sponsor of the? Yeah, of well, the unof- yeah, unofficial sponsor, yeah. Oh, okay. Is How about Linda Carter as Wonder Woman? Is she? She uh, doesn't know about the podcast yet. Oh, she's right there. Yeah, uh, she may I not be living get... anymore. I don't know if she's alive anymore. To be honest, she is alive. Oh, okay. Yeah. It. I. At any given moment, you tell me. Ask me if someone's alive, and we will you find out. out. Yeah. Well, we got a bunch of gold going already. We got to just start this thing and make sure everything we capture all the. Uh, you know. Is it already starting to record? It's we're starting to record, but I. I must give you some sort of intro so people know what who the all right well if this stuff is gold use it too but yeah uh, yeah uh what was i gonna say i watered my hair for this i just went i put water in my hair hey that's that's professional that's the professionalism i like to see that so Uh, now before i mispronounce your name it is gelbart is that did i do did i say it right well yeah gel like gel but not like but gel like gazelle not gel like jet like the j the J part is not like gel. It's not gel. No, it's gel. It's gel. Yeah. Gelbart. Michael Gelbart. Yeah. <laughs> well, there you go. You just introduced yourself. So we're here with Michael Gelbart, everybody. That's uh, who's on the show today. And uh, welcome, sir. And now Michael Gelbart is a comedian, funny man, you might say. Uh, he has a special, actually, you can watch on Amazon Prime, and it's called All New Smash Hits. Is that is that correct? It's called Michael Gelbart All New Smash Hits. Like, I don't think if you typed in on your Amazon Prime, if you typed in All New Smash Hits without my name, yeah. I don't know that it would show up. Well, but no, I did have a name, problem. I, I tried to look it up and I couldn't find it. And I was on someone else's account. So I went to my account and it worked. But you may be right. I might have typed the full thing and that's how I got it. So that is probably it. Yeah. Did you watch it? I did watch it. Now, to be fair, I've they're all new smash hits. So I have seen a couple of those live, but it's still a new experience when you rewatch it. You, you know, you forget some of it and you're just a funny guy. You're, you Even without telling jokes, I think when you just walk on stage, you're one of those guys that's like, even your little walk on stage, you're already laughing. You know what I mean? <laughs> just the way yeah, I, I guess. I mean, that that's a good quality to have is if you instinctively think 
An audience wants to feel they're in good hands. You know, when they see a comedian walk on stage, they want to go, I think this guy's got this. Mm -hmm. And sometimes uh, a comedian can have funny material, but if you see him walk on stage and start speaking and there isn't a, there isn't an air of that they really know what they're doing. Yeah. You don't feel as comfortable. Right. You start to feel that and then you go, yeah, that, that makes sense. That makes perfect sense. So in that, in that vein, then how long have you been doing comedy? And like, can you tell us sort of like how you got into it or sort of like why you got into it? I'm going to tell you something right now. This is a, uh, I've decided today is a no holds barred anything you want to talk about interviews. So, Let's go then. We'll go deep. But, uh, yeah. The, the uh, regular style questions like this one. Um, I started stand up at 17. I was in high school at the time and uh, I was doing amateur nights at, in, in Toronto at comedy clubs. And uh, I got my first paid gigs when I was still in high school. Hmm. And then, uh, and I, I can go into tremendous detail or just give you the... We got time. We can go for at least like an hour. Just Oh, okay. Well, yeah. I, I mean, okay. I, yeah, I got my first paid shows ever when I was still in high school. And then I graduated and went to broadcasting school. And that whole time, I was doing stand-up on weekends and in other cities and middling at comedy clubs. So, yeah, that's basically how I started. Now, when you went to broadcasting school, did you find any benefit there in higher education or did you feel like it was just something you were doing at the time? All those kinds of jobs, like go going into broadcasting, stand-up, none of that requires a formal education. So I knew, like, in school, it wasn't going to be the person with the best grades that was going to get the jobs. It was going to be either someone with a friend or someone who interned at the TV stations or radio stations or someone with an in in general. So, uh, or nepotism. So those are the kind of jobs where it's, it is good to learn the fundamentals. I'm glad there was a school for it, but at the same time, at the end of the day, uh, I'm pretty sure that most people in the graduating class did not end up in broadcasting or if they, they did, there were, in most cases, there's an extenuating circumstance that leads to your job. Right. So like you said, who you know, or somebody in the academic field places you somewhere or whatever it is, a connection of some kind, but it doesn't give you the balls to do comedy or say the the funny bone or anything like that. You're not oh, no, that didn't help with stand up at all. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I knew um, I the one thing it did, I don't know, it gives you a little extra polish. It didn't help with the stand up part of my career. And I don't know if any, no, I don't know what it did for me. I like you write it. for movies and TV or you've written for. Yeah. I, I, uh, uh, yeah. Right after I got my first half hour special, the CBC gave me a special when I was like 22 or 23 years old. And I got to like write sketches that I start in as, as well as doing stand up. And then the executive producer of that offered me, the chance to write on the Gemini Awards, which is now called the Canadian Screen Awards. And so I wrote what's called the non-broadcast, that any awards that were, were deemed not interesting enough to be on the broadcast, I wrote the non-broadcast Geminis. And by the next Geminis, I was promoted to the broadcast. And then by the third time I did it, I was the head writer of the Gemini Awards. Oh, wow, nice. So 
The great thing about writing about uh, on, a, on an award show is you're at the after party. Everyone has just seen your work for two hours in the theater. Yeah. Uh, and they're all producers who were nominated for awards. So people come up to you after, after at the party and stuff and you're talking and you get a lot of business cards and they say, hey, come right on this show, come right on that show. So I started my writing career as a result of the Gemini's, which was as a result of my CBC special. So none of it came from school. Although I loved school in general, I'm not saying kids don't yeah. go to school, right. but there are some careers that um, are launched completely on just having elbow grease or tenacity or just going out in the world and doing it. Right. Um, so what about when you first started, how did the, how did you deal with sort of stage fright in that? Or did you still get stage fright? Is that a... Um... I, well, I haven't been on stage since March of last year. Sure. I've done some Zoom shows, which I think are excellent, mm -hmm. but uh, I haven't uh, been on, I haven't done stand up on stage. But um, stage fright, I don't have any of that now. When I started, I, I'm sure the first time I ever did it, I'm like, I can't believe I'm doing this. This is crazy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This is so out of my comfort zone. I'm, I'm in the 12th grade, and this is, this is bigger than I am. This is a, um, above my psychological pay grade at the time, but um, I just I just did it, and then your self esteem grows by virtue of 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 doing something that's out of your comfort zone. Right. And what I got originally, I just stuck to the material for years, barely looked at people, and just basically recited the material. It was only when I really got confident on stage where I just decided that I could just talk to anyone in the audience, that I trusted myself that that would work. And eventually it got to the point where I could, if, I'm, was, if I was doing an hour at a club, I sometimes did the full hour of crowd work and just never got to my material. So yeah, I just gradually learned to trust that. Now there are other areas of my life that I find scarier than stand-up. Stand-up became easy. Public speaking, which is allegedly the hardest thing, people are scared of it, they'd rather die than speak publicly, became something that's one of the easiest things for me to do in the world. But there are some other things that other people would find, well, no, that's super easy and that one is harder because- What's an example? You, if everything's a muscle. If you don't practice those muscles, right. then you're just not gonna get good at them. Well, what's something that scares you then? I remember, I remember sometimes even, even into my thirties, you'd get a girl's or a woman's phone number and you'd call them for the first time or text or something. And you were just a little bit nervous about the unknown factor, whether or not they're going to text you back or call you or answer the phone. And you'd be like, this is not something to be particularly nervous about. This is just you relating to someone on a one-on-one -on -one level, but it would, it's always the unknown is what people are afraid of, you know, yeah. and performing in front of hundreds or thousands of people is not the unknown for me. Right. Once it becomes yeah. uh, something. But on a daily basis, all of us have some unknown element that we have to approach almost every day that could cause you some sort of fear, you know? Totally. That, that makes perfect sense. I mean, my only experience with that is like, say, maybe DJing, like DJing weddings for the first time is pretty nerve wracking, especially when you play the wrong song or something like that. Like, cause that is bound to happen at some point and you just look like an idiot. And uh, well, wait but, a minute, what's the wrong song? Like if something is a pre-chosen song, 
Mm-hmm. They want that for their first dance or their entrance song or something. And you have maybe I got the right album, but I screwed up and I got the wrong. I got track four instead of track three, something like that. Oh, and okay. You play that. And they're like, uh, wait, this is cool, but that's not what we chose. And that's embarrassing. But oh, the, the wrong song at the wrong time. At the wrong time. Yes. Yeah. Oh, because yes. when I heard the words, the wrong song, you thought it was I like a thong song come up to you and go, how could you play that when in the eighth grade I heard that song and it caused me a lot of trauma to hear it again? And you're like, how do I know what yes. the wrong song in yes. your life is? But, but to be fair, I mean, that does happen, too. Sometimes you're at the bar or the club or, or a wedding. You play a song. And they're like, shut it off. Turn this track. What? I just picked from the litter of popular songs. Like there's 100 people here. How am I supposed to know? Yeah, your it's specific- not your it, it is not within your realm of. Uh, it, you you couldn't possibly know what song affected someone psychologically <laughs> in their life when you don't know the person. Yeah, that's true. But uh, people need to relax. Is my point. Uh, oh yeah, people absolutely need to relax. Yeah, but uh, I'm very curious about sort of writing as a profession. Like for someone who doesn't know anything about it, um, how do you just like what? How would you describe it to someone that's never done it uh, for work, for example? like scenarios, characters, then you got to come up with, uh, maybe they have a loose outline of something and you have to come up with what they say to each other. Like how, what is the. Well, I've written on different kinds of shows. So there's different things, different things apply to different, to different genres. If you're writing on an award show and you're writing um, uh, monologue material, stuff presenters say, uh, pre-recorded sketches, that's all done one way. But if you're talking about writing narrative stuff, let's take, for example, I wrote on a lot of what are called tween sitcoms, uh, stuff from uh, Disney Channel, uh, Teen Nick, or it all all airs on the Family Channel in Canada. But what happens is they give you a one-page synopsis explaining what that episode will be about. Uh, Then you have to take that one page and flesh it out to between eight and ten pages, going beat by beat, what's going to happen in the episode. After you do that, the network reads it and approves it or has notes about it. And once you get uh, approved, then you uh, write the 30-page full episode of that show, taking the 10 pages that you did and just fleshing it out, adding all the dialogue and everything. And then you submit that. And if they have any notes, you have to make a couple of changes. If they have no notes, they just shoot your episode. And that's the whole process of writing a half hour uh, of television. Now, so to get a little more into the minutiae of this, are there different tactics, utility belts, uh, golden rules of writing? Like I always, what I notice in shows is, you know, they start off with some, some scenario that might not have to do much with the plot. Then the plot carries out. Then at the end, there's like a callback, like, uh, I don't know if this is only for specific shows or if this happens in every show. Do you know what I mean? Like the opening of The Simpsons, like some the the Professor Frank guy does something and then Bart sees him later at the end or Chief Wiggum has a joke and he does that second part of that joke at the end. It kind of like like the bookend type thing. What are these yeah. types of devices that you do? You just pull them out of your head like I've seen this in this show from the 80s. So I'm going to use that or how does it? Well, if you like have fully prepared your entire episode, you'll know what things on, like usually a show has like an A story, meaning which story is the focus of that episode, a B story, which is a slightly less important story. And then a runner, which is some joke that gets 
kind of like brought up throughout the episode right, that is right. still going to be paid off at the end. That right. Be, yeah. So when something like that happens with characters on the Simpsons or any show, they're already well aware that they planted something from earlier. Yeah. that They're going to pay off at the end. Usually re you resolve your main storyline. And then as one last joke, you yeah, also like, hey, remember the thing from the beginning? Yeah. That yeah. 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 That. Now we'll pay that off. So you basically everything is set off, set up and pay off, whether it be just one little joke. Yeah. Or whether it be um, uh, the full storyline of the episode. So is that one of the most common things? Like I was I've been watching Star Trek. I just finished The Next Generation. I just finished the finale last night. And I noticed that like the fans love and hate certain episodes, but a lot of the plots are just brought forth by simply like Picard coming out on screen and saying, oh, I've, I'm traveling between different time periods all of a sudden. Something's going on. And they go, are you sure it wasn't a dream? No, I really think it's real. And then they investigate that thing. And then he solves it at the end. Like it's so, it seems so rudimentary, like that anybody could come up with that. So like, I guess I'm just calling out, I don't know if that's bad writing or like, what is good writing? Is it something that confuses, intrigues the the viewer oh, I don't know I can't I don't want to claim I know what good writing is <laughs> okay. or bad right I do want to say that if a show sets up a bunch of stuff and then doesn't pay it off or a movie where you go see a movie and they go they 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 didn't even deal with that story they didn't even close the end of that storyline uh right it's usual that's some bad writing or some bad editing right so it doesn't have to be that sort of highbrow or crazy or intelligent for people. It's just more or less, are you, are you paying off what you set up? Are you closing the gap? Now in streaming, like now that uh, like 10 episodes of a new show is just one full movie basically, you know, and people just watch the whole season. It all comes out on the same week. Yeah. Now you can set up things because you're treating the whole season like a, like a movie. Now you can pay off things on episode eight that you set up in episode two. You don't have to set it. You don't have to pay it off in that little uh, period of time because you're dropping all 10 episodes on the same day. Right. So, so that's like a, like a benefit for you as a writer. Cause you can just leave all these cliffhangers and then yeah. finish them up. But the you're also, you, you're, you no longer think in terms of one episode. A lot of the shows I wrote on have the beginning, middle and ending in that episode. And then the stuff from that episode does not get brought up again in the next episode. But now when they're, when they're plotting their seasons now, they're not standalones anymore. Everything is about writing for that whole season. Uh, so you're basically writing a really long movie now and just chopping it up into parts. Yeah, hundred percent. Now, so whereas every episode of the Next Generation, that's that's old school storytelling, where it's yeah. just contained in that episode. I mean, it's pretty bad. Some of it. I mean, I know it was in the '90s and everything, and so I'm reliving this sort of like uh, past thing that I missed because I was a little kid. But uh, I mean, I like it. It's cool. It's just uh, is everything from the '90s like that and the '80s? Like things were just very rudimentary and kind of corny. What was there a cool phase? I don't know. I mean. I was never a next generation guy, you know? So, but I know what you mean. I do prefer how it is now. Like my favorite shows to watch, Better Call Saul or Breaking Bad or uh, any of the new shows, I do prefer that the way they're doing shows now. I do like that it's treated like a, the, where the whole season is one long storyline and the entire series becomes one long 
yeah, giant you get, you get longer buildups and you get longer payoffs where like you know something the characters don't for a whole season or two and then some big reveal happens where you can like finally like that's my most uh, one of my pet peeves with shows and movies is when I know something that the characters don't know I I can't stand that like I get all anxious I just yeah wanna... I don't I, I mean I I would still write on a TV show or even create a show that had its beginning middles and endings in the same episode but I, um, I don't, when I am creating new stuff, I don't, I'm not actively doing that. I am trying to write things that where the, the entire storyline goes over the course of one season. So it's a bit antiquated to do everything that way. Now, I remember sitcoms when I was growing up, there was no continuity of characters where they just, s- someone would like Frasier would go on a date on one episode and have sex. And then the next episode, Roz would say, Frazier, you haven't had a date in months. And I'd yeah. be like, what, didn't you watch last week? <laughs> right. Like, uh, so there was, uh, uh, yeah, that kind of thing. Fans don't really like that anymore, where, where you just, hey, well, we got a good joke about how this character never gets laid, even though he got laid last week. Yeah. So they don't do that now. Everything is remembered by the audience, probably because everything is available forever now, right? Oh, yeah. Back in the day when there was just network television and reruns, and maybe someone would buy the whole season on DVD, but probably wouldn't, it wouldn't matter if you had any continuity. But now this stuff is available forever. Uh, So people are going to be well aware that that does not fit the narrative of that character. Yeah. so I don't now, know if I'm answering your question. We, 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 I think we both just have five questions and five answers just floating around. This is what I like about conversation is that there's th- different things come to mind. And I, you know, something I wasn't thinking about five seconds ago. Now I'm thinking about it all of a sudden. It's just magic like that. But um, what about uh, the most cliche topic in the world? It's just the pandemic. What are the pros and cons uh, in the comedy world? Obviously shows, live shows. Uh, haven't been going up, but are you in LA now? Is that where you're I'm based? currently in Los Angeles? Yeah, I don't know that I'll be spending the rest of my life here. I'll tell you that much. But are things opening up there? Yeah, slowly, things or? are opening. I'm fully yeah. vaccinated. Here you go. And uh, I got Pfizer. I'm on. I I got Pfizer coursing through my veins. Right, right. And uh, yeah, and things are open. I've been uh, I've been to the movies a whole bunch of times. Did they ask for a passport? your vaccine passport oh no one's asked for that that's good because people are afraid of that and i just say you know what i just don't think it's going to be a thing just don't worry too much just 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 mean the card that says that you're vaccinated yeah i mean the people think they're going to ask for them you know at restaurants and movie theaters and everywhere you go and I don't carry it around no one asks they people are they're open now i go in with a mask on one of the rules in a movie theater or a restaurant, you have to walk in with the mask on. Yeah. While you're sitting down, you don't have to wear your mask, but yep. your server will come up to you with a mask. And then when you get up again, you have to wear the mask. Yeah. Uh, it's There are weird rules. I mean, this is still COVID just started, even though it's been so long, it's kind of new. Yes. So people don't know, like in the movie theater, it's like, be sure to wear your mask unless you're eating or drinking. But COVID doesn't care if you're eating or drinking. It's still going to go in you. Yeah. yeah. It's, oh, it's, that guy's eating. I'm not nah, going. He, he's eating. It's good. No, yeah. It's proximity. And, yeah. uh, you know, and uh, 
mean, we could get into some of the science if you like that kind of topic. On this show, we are very pro-science. We do interview scientists and authors and different things, but we don't have to get too in the weeds of things, but uh, any topic is open. In fact, instead of me asking a bunch of questions, or is there anything that you care about right now, whether it's in comedy or something that you need to tell the world, like what's bothering you? Or do you have a question that you need to ask? I don't. Is there a question in the world I need to ask? Yeah, is there something, I don't know, is there an answer that you're looking for? Is there anything you think we need to discuss to like, what can we figure out in this moment? Anything? That's tough. I didn't know. I. That's a very, it's both philosophical, it's broad, it's... That's kind of like what this show is about. So, you know. Hmm. um, What do I want to know about in the world? Uh... Or like any predictions? Like, what do you think? uh, You know, I don't know. We have this, we're in this timeline. We've got social media. Everybody's obsessed. We got political division. We got wars. We got the classic stuff that Earth does, you know, wars, comedy, politics. Like, what is next for us? What's next for comedy? Uh, What's next for politics? Are we going to get more divided? Are we going to come together at some point? Like, what's going on here? I'll tell you one thing. That uh, uh, long before you and I were watching mass media, I had heard that people like Johnny Carson would make jokes about both political parties, right? But now the divide is, it's like media has completely chosen one, you can only, you're, you're marketing yourself solely to one group. Yeah. And so only that group will watch that thing. And then an entire other group will only watch these things or seek their news from those places. And if you believe something wholeheartedly, you're only going to gravitate to the places that provide you with that. Mm-hmm. And I, the divide will always exist just as long as people are, are only seeking out things that corroborate what they already believe. Yeah. So yeah. If, if we really do want to come back together as a culture and see that both sides have value, you'd first have to stop going to places that only prove what you already believe. Yeah, and, and I, I would agree with that, but although with myself, I'm sort of purposely putting myself in a slightly left-wing bubble, like I've cut myself off from various right-leaning sources, but I there was a time a few years ago where I did buy into some of that stuff more so but certain things that with in the last year i guess with covid and uh the election in the u.s the the divide has become stronger as far as uh the the bullshit the bullshit meters are off they're out of whack with people who believe the election was stolen or that covid is you know covid is mild for a pandemic okay it's not sars one in deadliness but yet it's more spreadable so yes. you have a mild virus that can kill you, but some it's like a Goldilocks zone virus where, you know, it can spread a lot. So people get caught up in this, in the mildness of it. Yeah. Right. But they don't fully grasp what the experts understand, virologists and all that, that how it actually could spread and such and such and so on. Right. So you yeah. have these, the average person now has to understand this high level academic subject, which is viruses, right? But we don't, we don't understand viruses and we need to start admitting that to ourselves that, yeah, right. And it's not that you bow down to your government, but you hear out the, 
the public health experts that are suggesting things, you know, and, 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 you know, uh, does that make sense? Does that make any sense? Yeah, it makes a lot of sense to me. I think that, uh, um, yeah, obviously everyone was like starting like last March when everything started to get shut down and it got very serious. Uh, people started having developing these hard and fast rules or beliefs about it that they couldn't possibly corroborate and then getting really angry if you didn't believe what they believed about it. But for me, it was like, they're like, you don't need to wear a mask outside. And like, they were telling me all these things. I'm like, look, I wear a mask outside for other people's comfort. Not from, I don't think I'm going to get it outside, but if I see someone coming in towards me six feet away, I'll put it on just to say, I don't know you, but if you're scared right now, I'm not adding to that. Yeah. And that's just a common courtesy thing. Right. And that's, that's because you're not embarrassed to wear a mask. It might be slightly uncomfortable for you, but by the way, there's very comfortable masks out there. A lot of people are worried about the comfort of their mask. You can spend like $3 and get like a really soft, you know, cloth sort of, you could just. Yeah. And I'm wearing it less and less now. Right. I always yeah. have it around in my pocket for whatever reason, but I don't need anyone else to believe what I believe. Like, yeah. The, the, the sides that are fully deterred, you shouldn't get vaccinated because of this and that, or you definitely should be. I, I'm like, I don't have the concrete answers. I don't want to yell to prove <laughs> any kind of point to you. Yeah, yeah. I'm not going to sway you in either capacity, and I don't need you swayed either, right? Yeah. I chose to get vaccinated, uh, and I... Uh, don't need anyone else to do what I did to feel okay with my decision. It's these people that need you to believe they're right. Yeah. That are most uh, afraid, I guess, because they're, they're trying to get as many people to believe what they believe. Yeah. And, uh, and still over something that we don't have the answers to. So why, why force other people to believe something that is uncertain? Yeah. And for me, I, I did make one large social media post recently and I got some positive feedback and I just made the case. I just said, look, I'm just going to say this one thing for us young people, 30 somethings. Here's my case for why you should get the vaccine. I'm not forcing anyone. I don't think anyone's going to force you. You know, I'm just saying, here's why I think you should and you shouldn't be afraid. And I got some positive. I got some a couple negative things, too, but uh, I'm not trying to. I guess I am trying to convince, but only because I believe in. Uh, technology and scientific solutions to things. It's just one of my, I don't know if you call it a passion or like a interest, um, something I believe. So, but you're right. You shouldn't be, because again, that won't convince anyone also if you're too, uh, you know, if you're too adamant about it, you're too, you know, if your language is too extreme, yeah, uh, you might not convince somebody, but, uh, but I do think it's, in, it's like voting in a way for me, I think it's a civic duty. And I just say, you know, if you, if you were going to do it, post about it. Because if you post, hey, I went and voted. Uh, I think studies have shown that it it kind of convinces your buddies to, well, he voted. I might as well do it kind of thing. I um, did. when I, You know, I posted a photo of me getting vaccinated the second time. Yeah. Because I was. it's like getting a new car or getting <laughs> like, you know, you're proud of your vaccination because yeah. it's hard to get for some people. And you're. It's, a, it's like, you know, this is my baby or this is my dog or this is my vaccination shot. Yeah. Yeah, it's a weird thing. It's touchy. I get it. I get it. But um, 
somewhat related, but a, a random topic I had, you know, everybody talks about this concept of living in the moment. You know, I don't know if you heard that before that you should live living in the moment. In the moment? <laughs> of course I've heard of that. So my thing is like, uh, maybe I'm being a devil's advocate, but living in the moment, obviously that's important. But is there something to be said about thinking like China thinks in hundred year blocks, like thinking about your grandchildren, and your great grandchildren is, is that all nonsensical or is that something that should be a priority for people? Like when we talk about the pandemic and how countries reacted, I'm concerned about how countries will react to pandemics for my great grandchildren and so on when I'm not here. That's, a, I guess, just a, you can hold both ideas. You can live in the moment and you can think about the future. But do you have any thoughts on that? Do you think we should care about our great grandchildren or just let them fend for themselves? <laughs> <laughs> I think that those ungrateful great grandchildren. <laughs> they're not going to know your name, by the way. They're, they're not going to remember you. Great grandchildren. Well, maybe these well, I'm, days. I'm deep into my 40s at this point. I, if I, and I don't have kids yet. So if I, if I do inevitably have one kid, uh, I will never see my great, great grandchildren. Unless, unless my kid has a kid at like 16 and they have a kid at like 16, then I got a shot. But uh, other than that, no, I have almost no chance of seeing my great, great grandchildren. Right, and that's making right. me sad because I know that I would have loved those great grandchildren. It would have been great. But but actually, someone did bring this up to me the other day that, uh, I mean, with social media and the Internet and everything, you're actually your special will probably be up there still, you know, for who knows, like your eighth great grandchildren. Like yeah, these yeah. things never go away now. I mean, yeah. as long as there's a distribution company who still sells my special to other places, it could go from Amazon Prime to Netflix to who, who knows what other place. And it could just find new homes forever. Any time I look on YouTube for old episodes of TV shows I wrote, they're there or some streaming service has them. But they're not going to be sought out that much. I mean, as the years go on, it, there's infinite content out there. If we wanted to watch every great TV show being made, like right now, there's probably like, everyone's like, hey, have you seen this? Hey, did you watch Bridgerton? Or there's always a new show that I don't get to. So there's just so much content. Yeah, it's going to get swallowed up by other stuff. Yeah. Yeah. So I might be out there forever, but you'd have to go out of your way to really seek that person out, you know? Yeah, that's true. But it is a strange thing that now we're, we're past the Rubicon. I don't know what you want to call it, but this, I think the millennium, the year 2000 really was like a turning point. Like I know it was a, everybody thought Y2K and everything, but it really kind of was there's a before 2000 and an after 2000, like yes. people did have the internet, but it was dial up before yeah. 2000. And then it just exploded. And then you got Google earth, YouTube, 2005, all that, like things really now it's all commonplace. Like this kind of instant, we're all in instant communication with each other and um, all the cliche things that everybody says about technology. But but it does make me curious. Do you ever think about like, well, will these social media things die out? Will we have a different thing? You know, is it just this from now on or are we going to have like a new thing like the telephone or the TV, like the next thing after the Internet? Well, everything moves very quickly now, whereas pre-Internet seemed to go a lot slower. There'd be like VHS would be around for years and then DVD replaces it. But everyone used to get a decade or the fax machine. The fax machine 
went away quick. But um, because internet came along and swooped in with email and then the fax machine did not get its its full length of time that it probably thought it was going to get, you know? Yeah. But things move along pretty quick now. And I don't see, yeah, I think it's all going to be internet related, I think. I don't think that something is going to phase out the internet. It's just going to be what can the internet bring us? So new, some, new, yeah. yeah, internet based, uh, where it's going to be a new uh, a new social media that is more popular than the last one, and uh, the, there, there's always going to be a new TikTok replacing uh, the uh, Snapchat, and there's always going to be a new place yeah. that everyone wants to put their stuff. The one thing, like that, there are certain forms of old media that used to be incredibly popular that will never be back. Like the Oscars is never coming back as a thing <laughs> culturally, you know? Mm-hmm. When I was a kid, the Oscars were second below the Super Bowl as something that globally everyone watched. And this year they got 10 million viewers. Now, here's what, for example, social media has made it so nobody wants to host a show like the Oscars because if you accept the job of hosting the show, uh, they'll find old tweets of yours from who knows how long ago and go, just like a politician running for office, they're going to seek out everything you ever said and go, here's why he needs to apologize for having said that six years ago, or he should step down. So then no one wanted to host the show. Plus any live event is being tweeted about in real time, right? So it used to be, if you did something on television, you'd get reviewed the next day. But now people are reviewing you every second that you speak. So there's almost no, uh, there's no incentive for wanting the job, right? Because you're just gonna get ragged on for the entire time or or get canceled for taking the job in the first place. Right, right? but then you have a guy like Ricky Gervais who kind of, cracks that model where he just talks shit about everybody when he hosts anything and they managed to be what there's a there's a couple of voices in our culture that still get to say whatever they want yeah yeah they don't get eliminated immediately and he's managed to be one of those people what do you think about him i I really i kind of like him i think he's funny and i think that i like the way that he sort of talks about society and stuff like that. I don't know. When I see Ricky Gervais host a show, uh, <laughs> the thing about, yeah, I don't watch award shows, but when I watch yeah. the Golden Globes and he's hosting, I like it, except for you got a beer there, which is delicious and you're enjoying it. I like a nice beer from time to time. The thing where Ricky Gervais is holding a beer on the award show the whole time, that's the only thing I don't like okay. about it. I forgot about that. I didn't even, okay. Because it seems to, he always comes back out with a beer and he's drinking it while he's doing his bits. And okay. it almost feels to me like, we get it already. You're badass. You're drinking on television. <laughs> it, right. it feels like it becomes a prop almost. Oh, that's interesting. A prop to prove how edgy you are when he, verbally he's already succeeded. So but I'm just nitpicking at this point. Sure, sure. No, but that's a good point. Okay. Fair enough. Fair enough. Um, you're entitled to that opinion, though. It's an open, open It's not dialogue. much of an opinion. <laughs> well, regardless, you're still entitled uh, to it. Now, okay. So are you born funny? Is that the only way you can be funny? Can no, you? No, I think, I, I think it comes from... Uh, 
No, you're not. I, I, I think you have to have some all, 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 all off kilter view of the world, maybe. Yeah. Um, you have to want, you have to care about being funny. A lot of people don't like it wouldn't like the idea of being funny would not even be interesting to them, you know? Yeah. But at an early age, I loved comedy. I loved when I'd make people laugh. I loved watching comedy related things on television or listening to comedy. So at an early age, I was like, I would like to do that as well. Right. And I, at an early age, if you're, you know, you're a kid and you know, you go to school for the first time, you're not sure you're going to make friends or whatever. And I found comedy or being funny really broke the ice. And then when I was really young and shy, and if I'd go to school one year and I wasn't funny, life would get, more difficult. <laughs> and if I showed up that year with a comedic attitude, said funny things in class, the year would go better for me. So it was a good way to like make friends or to be liked by people. So you do gravitate to things that make uh, where you find acceptance, you know? But as far as being born funny, I don't know. Yeah, you have to be born with the desire to for it to matter to you. Yeah, and I guess what comes to mind is do you like every comic has uh people you look up to in comedy that inevitably because humans do this, we imitate. Like it's not like any we like to think we're original, right? Everybody we're all unique and original, but in reality, you're born into this world which everything you then yeah, there's some instinct, but there's also uh, you're mimicking your parents or whatever as you grow up. You're, yes, so the you gathering must of information. Like if you start loving comedy, for example, and you have your favorite comedians and you first start doing stand-up, you're going to write in their voice or even find yourself slightly sounding like them because you're. Uh, it's either a form of protecting yourself or just because that's, that's how you learned how the, you want to sound like the people you think are great. And uh, if you don't evolve past that, you're not going to be a good comedian. You're just going to be an impressionist. Cat or Yeah, impressionist. Oh, it's like a cover band, right? If you, you start sounding like Nirvana, you start a grunge band. like you. Yeah, but at a certain point, like I was really happy when I was a kid and I got my first special and they called me Canada's Seinfeld, right? <laughs> and I was happy about it. And then right. I realized, wait a minute, that's not a good thing to be, so, to be a poor man Seinfeld or... A, <laughs> young version of that you want to you want to like take the people who made you want to do this in the first place and use that as a jumping off point towards becoming the most uh, to the towards becoming yourself on stage so I originally saw that as a badge of honor and immediately realized I had to develop my own persona my own take on the world because right now if someone said write a Seinfeld-esque bit for him i could do it because i understand <laughs> the um i understand the kind of math of how to write a seinfeld like bit yeah or and i also used to found my find myself sounding like norm mcdonald at an early age because those were my two guys those oh no hi norm mcdonald uh, say what is it is do this right and then he just go ah there's oj simpson you said this that's yeah, yeah that's the sort of voice that you would do <laughs> yeah you would write material in that, in that, in that sound. And uh, so the, a little bit, I would, I, I would write a little bit of to that, uh, uh, to that voice. Yeah. But 
it, it, it you, you know, you, it, it, it goes away if you're, uh, right. unless I worked with him for two years, I was his opening act for like 40 shows. Um, so I definitely did by the time I was his opener, I didn't sound like him at all by that point, but yeah, the yeah. people whose jokes I liked were on paper even where it would be norms or, or Jerry Seinfeld. Well, I was going to say, even if they're, if someone's, um, I guess it works like they would choose you to be an opener. You don't like apply to be an opener or something, right? There must be some sort of like, hey, you want to come on the road with me type thing. Yeah, no, there's no application process. (laughs) But I mean, like he wouldn't want to pick someone who sounds or he sorry, he rather what I was going to say is he he sort of wouldn't want to pick someone who sounds just like him, but something in his vein because his fans are going to most people choose you to open for them for two reasons, maybe. Yeah. Or uh, one would be if they want to hang with you, if you seem like a good guy to hang out with after the show or before they don't mind taking a car ride or flying with you somewhere. So it would be about hanging, right? That would be the number one reason someone chooses someone is they seem like a good hang. Yeah. Right. But if you're really looking at your act, in my case, when I choose an opener, I gravitate to someone who's not, who's going to make the audience laugh. So they're already warmed up but they're not going to step on anything material wise or personality wise that is similar to you. You don't want to compete against your own style or your own act. So I'd like, I usually, I would gravitate to a middle-aged woman who talks about her kids the whole show. Cause if they're funny at it, they'll be good enough to set up the night for you, but no one's going to be, uh, going, hey, that guy's talking about being a middle-aged mom also, because <laughs> it won't be, you know? Right. So it's good to choose someone who uh, that contrasts you. You also don't want to choose anyone who's going to put any kind of weird feeling in the room yeah. where it's like they, they now aren't enjoying their night anymore as a result of having you there. So you don't want... You don't want to choose someone with a point of view that is offensive or designed to shock the audience if your goal is to get the audience warmed up. So now speaking of other comedians, what were some of your initial influences? Um, we, we talked about Seinfeld and Norm MacDonald. Seinfeld and Norm are my only uh, really? influence. Really? Yeah, I have no oh. influences. Uh, <laughs> I... Uh, <laughs> yeah. And even those, I still enjoy watching them as, as masters, but I don't, and I like Chris Rock a lot. Uh, and uh, if Chappelle has a new special, I'd watch that too. Yeah. Um, Chappelle's and, awesome. Obviously. Yeah. That's, uh, but there's very few, I like when I see that Netflix has 9,000 specials or Amazon prime has a zillion specials, including mine. Well, I don't go, I want to watch stand up, you know? Yeah. Well, that was my, going to be my other question is one thing I think about is uh, I find that live stand up is a hundred times better than watching a special on Netflix or something. Um, but also not to shit on anyone specifically, but like, isn't there a lot of kind of mediocre and bad specials that come out on Netflix and like they play you like the trailer with like these jokes and then the audience howling, but it's like, they're not even landing. Is it just cause I'm not in the audience? Like if you were in the audience, would it actually be funny? But when you watch it, it's not that funny. I try, I try not to be someone who, um, who rags on other comedians. Of course, of course. I, but it's, yeah. I'm not going to name names or anything, especially yeah. since I don't watch their specials. Right. Yeah. 
But I do know and believe that there is a lot of, because we're wall-to-wall content now and Netflix just acquires more and more content, Amazon, HBO, uh, Max, Paramount, everyone's got their streaming service. There's so many streaming services, it's hard to get content. So perhaps there's, there's, there's more content out there than there is good content for so sure. Would you say it's oversaturated? Is that? Yes. I, I think that, um, uh, that, yeah, I, I, yeah, there, there's a shocking amount of Netflix standup specials where you look at them and there's one, one star right, right next to the special. Right. Yeah. They make me okay. just kind of go, uh, you know, um, I love one thing. I was in New York city one time and some guy was handing out flyers and I went to some underground show. We were on a school trip, you know, a little break of a school trip. And that was one of the most authentic, just kind of, I'm in New York city, never been there before, go to some underground show. And it was really funny. And these guys were not mainstream or anything, but uh, I just really think it's something about uh, being there in the audience. uh, That's makes it more funny. You know, Um, it is more funny. And let me tell you something. If you notice in my special, the first 25 minutes is just me doing stand-up. And then after I've established for 25 minutes that I might be really good at writing material and performing it, that's when I start um, doing crowd work. Like I, I incorporate the audience once I've established that. Because in real life, if you're in the room and the comedian gets on and he's doing crowd work from the beginning, it's exciting and fun because you're in the room. You might be next. This is happening live. Yeah. But if you're at home and you put on a special and it's someone doing crowd work and you <laughs> know the comedian, you're like, you haven't earned the right for me to find it interesting that you're talking to a stranger in a room two years ago. That's yeah. not that interesting because you're not in the room seeing it happen in real time. So you, you're like specials look better when you're doing material not because it's only exciting to hear crowd work when you're actually in the room yeah and And if you're gonna put crowd work in the special make sure you've established for a long chunk of it that you're good at other things yeah i almost think it's interesting when you're sitting on your couch at home hearing some guy making fun of a guy in the front row of the show from two years ago yeah i i also think because you're confined to a physical space in real life when you're at a show your brain tells you like laugh dummy because like you're there to laugh like that's what you're there to do but when you're at home you got like maybe dinner's cooking or maybe someone's calling or something you're not quite in it and i think like specials can almost give comedians a bad name for people like they might watch a special and be like ah he's not funny what if you just saw him live, like you would really get it. It'd just be. Yeah. And, well, yeah. it is yeah, the, the best place to watch stand up is live. Stand up is a live experience. <laughs> right. And I guess the second place would be a really good stand up special. But uh, there's not that many really good ones. What are the what's if people like my age, Zoomers or, boom, or millennials or, what is something they need to go back and watch? We talk about Norm. Like, what is Norm? Does Norm have a, the best special we got to go back and watch? No, I don't know. I mean, he had a Comedy Central one a few years ago, and he has a Netflix one. I I, I, I can't. I, I, I like them, but I don't know that anyone else would. You know? <laughs> yeah, maybe it doesn't hit the same for us. Some of this young, these young folk, man, they don't, they don't really know. How, how old are you now? I'm 33. Okay, so yeah, you're like, more than 10 years younger than me. So Which I guess is I'm- the year that Jesus apparently died. It's also Scotty Pippen, uh, 
Kareem Abdul-Jabbar's and Larry Bird's uh, numbers. So, so there's that. Dorsett's number two in the Dallas Cowboys? Could be. I don't know sports really at all. I just looked up but the number 33. A whole bunch of sports people. I'm just so not a sports You know what, though? My favorite documentaries, sports documentaries. Yeah. Did you watch that whole uh, – did you watch the Michael Jordan – documentary series? i did i did it was very long but i liked it a lot it was very interesting yeah yeah i especially my favorite character of the whole thing was that scotty pippen he's the I best who yeah, he skips practice anything. and shit going to the strip club different things he just does his own thing and then he just shows up for the game like yeah but yeah he's the unsung hero of the michael jordan documentary series is Scotty Pippen for me? He is. It, uh, me and my chums. Like, you like the word chums. I heard you say in your special. Uh, me and my chums. Like you, you watched it. I did watch it. Yeah. Because you never know when someone when you do someone's podcast or anything if they really watched whatever it is. I like to do my research. Sometimes I don't have time for things, but I uh, the research I can you know I do it. I do it when I can do it. But so uh, when well, you watched it, now you hate a lot of the stand up specials. Yeah. So if you didn't know me already. And you just stumbled across it. What what would you think? Well, see, this is a hypothetical that I don't know if I can answer this because I are I do know you and I've seen you live twice, so I already like you. I have a preclude preclude. What's that word? Proclivity? Yeah, something like that uh, <laughs> to, to you. Um, so, but no, I mean, yeah, it's funny, man. I just think you're a funny guy. That's that's, that's good. Cool. That'll work out for me. I wish I could do stand up, but I've no, I've never been told I could do stand up. But I've I've told other people who don't do stand up that they could do stand up. So I think I could be like a A and R or like a manager and pick out talent. But uh, yeah, and you know sometimes you're right, and the person you said it to could do stand up, and sometimes we're just wrong. <laughs> and whatever we found them engaging at a dinner party, or we found them funny in the room, or uh, drinking coffee, or. And then they just don't, it doesn't translate to any other place. Like there's, everyone's got like some uncle where everyone's like, oh, Uncle Herbie should have been a comedian. And yeah. then, no, Uncle Herbie is funny to us at the wedding. Yeah. But he might not, it might not work out anywhere else but there. Yeah. It's probably best that we don't encourage random people to do stand up. We just, if you have the balls to try it and you make it, then we'll watch you and we'll think you're funny. But other than that, there's, no but you know, it's an, it's a better compliment than saying to some stranger, you know, you're a very charismatic and humorous <laughs> person when I interact with you. And I just want you to know that. So that it's actually better to just say, Hey, I think you could be a comedian. It, it, it sounds like a, yeah. Yeah. Other than, yeah, because if you're not saying that, you're going to be basically giving them a review of their personality. Which yeah, is I think your personality is pretty good, man. How do you? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, you got a really good personality and you make people laugh when you say things. But I mean, so did anybody tell you that when you were starting or did you just go on your own or did people say that? at such a young age. I knew that, every, like I said, every year, the eighth grade, ninth grade, all that stuff, whenever I was comedic. Yeah. When I'd say something in class that was not particularly disruptive, but got a laugh, I'd feel good and people liked it, right? Yeah. So it was instinctively, I don't know. Yeah, the positive feedback I got when I attempted to be funny was something that made me want to go and do it. Yeah. 
Now, yeah. were you how? What was your confidence? Lo- I mean, every young person obviously you have confidence issues, but did you right off the bat say, "Yeah, I can do this," and you just started killing it, or did you kind of go, "This is going to be rough, but I'm gonna I'm gonna try it because I want to do this." I don't know how genuine the confidence was. Like if I had a therapist at an early age, which I did not, I don't know if my confidence was real or if it was there to get me through the day, but I believed the confidence was real, right? I didn't know it was a mask I was wearing, but it it was real enough at the time that it made it possible for me to go on stage thinking, yeah, this is the right move for me. Like, uh, So, yeah, of course, this is the natural progression of things is that I would be someone that hundreds of people would look at and listen to. That was something I fundamentally must have believed at that age. Um, Now, do we confuse sometimes confidence with comfort? Like um, what this is maybe another philosophical question and maybe we can end on something like this. But does we talk about stage fright and and confidence and we talk about fake it till you make it um, like confidence it's not necessarily comfort, but it's being okay with if they don't like me, they make fun of me. Like I'm putting my ego aside for a moment. And then yeah. if I screw up, I'm not going to die. I'm not going to lose my yeah. life. So let me just try it. But you're not necessarily what we think of as confident. Does that make any sense? Well, I, I'll, I'll try. Like, okay, if I have a new piece of material to do on stage and I don't know where the laughs are necessarily going to be, you have to go out there and do it knowing that you might end up with nothing, right? Like it isn't confident to go on stage with material that's worked for a decade or longer and know it's all going to work out. You're just reciting at that point. Right. But taking yourself out of your comfort zone in any areas where the true confidence comes from, because it's how much will I like myself or, or like the world in general if I do something that doesn't go well, right? So if you write, if you do all new material on stage and the audience goes, this guy sucks, oh my God, he's terrible. You have to accept that because it's the only way. That's how you got good in the first place at anything was working it out publicly, whether it be going up to a stranger or making new friends or anything in life involved the uncertainty of not knowing it was gonna work out, right? So that so is that is confidence in a sense. Yeah. yeah, true confidence isn't doing something you're great at already again and again. Yeah, uh, it's it's trying to see if you can further yourself through something, either a new piece of material or some new experience. So it's sort of going out on that ledge and not being afraid to fall. Yeah, or, yeah. It's that. It, it's why some people are local heroes, or they won't leave their hometown because. They're, they can still be that swaggering guy they once were in that town and people will still buy it rather than showing up somewhere new and going, oh my, who am I without those people and that approval? And in those questions where you, you step out of that comfort zone, that's who you find out who you really are, where you're like, wait a minute, it wasn't just the fact that those people within that small radius like me, I can actually survive or even thrive anywhere is where the i guess confidence would come from oh that makes a lot of sense genuine that's, confidence not just the arrogance of being able yes. to say that's what i was thinking arrogant yeah it's it, opposed to arrogance yes that makes sense no it's a interesting way to look at it but uh 
I think we've covered a lot of ground today. Is there anything else you need, any advice you want to give the young people or anything uh, you want to say? To I the love people? the young people. I, <laughs> I, I feel older than I am when I say stuff like that. But if the young people need me for anything, they can reach out to me. Uh, I'll respond. And, and, and so, yeah, as far as websites and social media, your special is All New Smash Hits. That's on uh, Amazon uh, yeah, Prime. Yeah, Michael Galbart, All New Smash Hits is on Amazon Prime. And yeah, you saw it, so you can tell people if you believe it's good. And, uh, and uh, yeah, I'm just writing new stuff. Hopefully I'll get some more movies and TV shows uh, made. And I guess that's it. What? Uh, how long have we been on? I don't want it to be It's short. almost an hour we've done. Uh... That's not enough. What's your longest episode ever? Uh, there has to be one that's over two hours. Um, something like, I think something like that too. What's your shortest? Oh, probably 30 minutes. I don't see as long as we made it to the regular length. They're usually an hour. That's what I like. You know, I just don't like to keep people too long and, you know, but, but I've enjoyed our conversation thoroughly and I'm hope we can keep in touch uh, as we do over the years and, you know, see you back around here in Niagara and that, uh, if you ever want me back on the show, I'll come back because we, we danced around a lot of topics, but yeah. there's a million other things too. So yeah, and there's I'm, always deeper levels you can go down with these different roads that we've touched upon, you know. So how does this whole thing look, by the way? I resituated my It looks good. It's a little dark. Like if you go if you were on the Room Raider Twitter, if the Room Raider ever raided your room, they might give you like a eight out of ten. You need some more plants, I think. Okay, uh, yeah. I resituated it for today because I always hated my Zoom. Uh, I always hated my backdrop, so I, I moved everything for this. But you needed one of these traffic lights here or a Linda Carter uh, poster or something. Well, you got the, uh, is that the Beatles, but they're Kiss? Yeah, that's called Kiss the Beatles made by Mr. Uh, Banksy. You know Banksy, the I artist? I Banksy, yeah, okay. That's a, that's a Banksy called uh, Kiss the Beatles. Now, isn't that clever? Yeah. Uh, wow, you said that with a lot of, that's not clever, <laughs> that's not clever at all. <laughs> Uh, well, uh, man, honestly, it's been great to chat with you and, uh, pleasure. yeah, you're a funny guy. I can't wait to, uh, when this pandemic stuff's over, hopefully you'll be back around and we can all come. Yeah. See we'll you hang live. in the falls for sure. I'll yeah. let you know when I'm coming. Yeah. It's great, man. Um, day, let me, should I say best episode ever without, without you having seen any of the other one, we'll just say it's the best one I've ever done so far. I saw the one that you showed me and it, of the two. I like mine better, but <laughs> there we go. <laughs> but that one was good too. There we go. Best you've seen so far. So but you definitely have a worst episode, right? Like we all have. Oh a- yeah. Probably the first or second or third. One of those. Is yeah, well, shit. I, you know, they get better and better. Congratulations. Continued success, man. Thank you. Thank you very much. Hey, we're, we're yeah, a small time, you know, we're the engine, the little engine that could, you know, we're like a, we're a small fish is what we are. Well, you, you, who knows, right? You never know. And honestly, when I hit a hundred, I'm going to quit for a while. Not because I'm discouraged or anything. I just, this has been a very fun medium for me. And it's an excuse to talk to people that I think are cool. Um, and then we'll see what happens. It's just. What number are you at now? This is like 90, I want to say 91, 91. Oh my God. Hey, so if you're going to stop at a hundred, you should do a, um, a series finale. So right. this is what I'm thinking now. So for episode 99, okay, and for listeners who want to know, I have the uh, skeptic who invented Tony Hawk's Pro Skater, Mick West, is coming back with uh, also Dr. Kevin Fulta, who is a uh, 
scientist from the University of Florida, and uh, he talks about GMOs and different things, and they both kind of debunk a lot of stuff. So we're going to get them both on at the same time, and we're going to just debunk everything in the world, I suppose. But what that's going to be episode 99, but now you're giving the idea for like episode 100 should just be whoever wants to come back from previous guests, just 20 guys in a Zoom, and we can all argue and talk. Or 100 guys. <laughs> Yeah, as many guys. as you can get, as many Zoom boxes as you can get. And do <laughs> we'll crash the servers. <laughs> and yeah, that, I, I'll be back for the hundredth if you want me. Cool. Sure. I'll, I'll I'll mark that down and I'll uh, see who else is down and we'll do it up. All right, man. Such a pleasure. Have a great day. Yeah, you too. Take care. Yeah. See ya. I'm leaving the meeting. Me too.